You're listening to the Mission Church Podcast. Each message comes from our Sunday morning gatherings where we worship in community, study God's Word, and grow in our faith together to the glory of Jesus Christ. The Mission Church is committed to helping each person belong and believe and to equip them to embrace the call of God upon their life. We pray these messages will build your faith and encourage you today. Um, Chapter 23, here we are, the title of the message, The Eight Woes of Self-Righteousness. Uh, we began looking at them last week. Again, Pastor JC did a great job. We're going to kind of review and move forward into the ones that we didn't cover. Uh, but the eight woes of self-righteousness. And here in chapter 23, we see Jesus doing something a little different. He gives a, a seething teaching, a seething uh, review on the religious leaders of Israel. Why? Why? I mean, what's going on that would cause Jesus to speak such harsh and uh, really pointed words? Well, here's what's going on. Uh, Jesus has invested three years of his ministry into building these religious leaders, into teaching them, and yet they will not hear his message. Uh, they've spurned and rejected his teachings, and Jesus knows that he's going to the cross in just two days. Amazing to consider what Jesus is doing right now, knowing that he's going to the cross in two days on Passover. It's Wednesday as we read here in chapter 23, and on Friday, Jesus is going to the cross to take our sins. He's been trying to speak to the religious leaders, but they continue to spurn his message. They will not hear. And so here, Jesus now speaks sternly to Israel's religious leaders, hoping that they will hear and hoping that they will repent. Uh, One of the reasons... That Israel's religious leaders were so against Jesus, uh, besides the jealousy and the, uh, the fame that Jesus had, the power that Jesus... One of the main reasons that they would not hear Jesus is because of self-righteousness. Self-righteousness. Why would they not receive their Messiah? Why would they not receive a Messiah who came to save them from their sin? To give them salvation as a free gift to all who call upon him. A free gift, the forgiveness of sin and righteousness imparted to you freely. Why would you not receive that? Why would they not receive? They heard his profound teaching. They saw the signs that he did, the miracles that he did. But they would not receive him. Why? Here's why. The main reason self-righteousness. They saw no need for what? A savior. They saw no need for forgiveness of sin because they thought they were righteous on their own. Self-righteousness, we're going to use that word a lot today. What does it mean? It means being right in your own eyes. Thinking too highly of yourself. Thinking that you are right with God by your own performance or by your own merit. Not possible. God is holy. And in order to come to him, we need a righteousness that is far superior to anything we could ever do, even on our best day. And Jesus gives us that righteousness freely. But because the religious leaders of Israel were so self-righteous, they saw no need for a Messiah who was going to go to a cross to die for their sins. What did they want in a Messiah? They wanted someone to take care of their problems. To dominate Rome, who was oppressing them, so they didn't have to deal with it. They wanted a free lunch and not to have to go to work in the morning. They wanted their problems fixed. They didn't want their sin forgiven. And the reason they didn't is because they were what? Self-righteous. 
And so Jesus has been ministering to them for three years, cannot get through, and now he speaks to them on the woes of self-righteousness. By the way, self-righteousness is a brutal monster that all of us must wrestle and learn how to put to death. None of us here are immune from self-righteousness, myself included. We are prone to it, and it sneaks in by stealth, and it often sneaks into our lives, often totally unnoticed. And when it does, it does things to us. It fuels our selfishness. It fuels our, our pride. It makes us high-minded. It makes us judgmental of others. And it damages our relationships. I want you to know self-righteousness has ruined many of marriages. As a husband thinks a little too highly of himself and puts down his wife. As a wife thinks a little too highly of herself and puts down her husband. It's ruined families. As instead of being gracious and understanding, we get a little too high-minded and it's torn homes into pieces and destroyed many lives. And this happens because self-righteousness, it hardens our heart. It hardens our heart. It makes us unteachable and high-minded. One of the number one traits that self-righteousness brings is a hard heart and an unteachable spirit. Crazy, crazy, dangerous things to have happen. And so we need to be careful. Uh, and ultimately, ultimately, what does self-righteousness do to us? Ultimately, it sends us to hell. It sends us to hell because we have no need for a savior. Self-righteousness is what makes us say, I think I'm fine with God. I think that, you know, in the end, if you've done more good than bad, then I think I'm a pretty good person. I think God's going to be lucky to have me. Uh, yeah, that's what self-righteousness does. And actually, we find it sends us to hell. And so Jesus, he's been ministering to the religious leaders, but they wouldn't hear. Now he speaks sternly. And his message to us is simply this. We must take self-righteousness seriously. It's a serious sin. And he speaks really sternly to the Israel's religious leaders because they're self-righteous and they would not hear. Uh, before Jesus gets into the eight woes of self-righteousness, he gives a nugget of wisdom that is incredibly profound. So let's jump in right at verse 11 and let's look at what Jesus says. Uh, follow along as I read. But he who is greatest among you shall be your servant. And he who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. This is an incredible nugget of wisdom. Don't let it go in one ear and out the other without thinking about it. Notice what Jesus says. Get a pen out. I want you to write a couple things down for me. Write this down. After this verse, after verse 11, he who is greatest among you shall be your servant. I want you to write the words, a reality. A reality. And whoever humbles himself, excuse me, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. I want you to write these words, a promise. A reality and a promise. The first reality, what is it? Jesus says, if you really want to be great, if you really understand greatness, it's how many people you serve. The world has a different idea of greatness, don't we? The world has an idea that greatness is defined by how many people serve you. Well, I got a maid, and I got a gardener, and I got a guy to detail my car, and I got a butler, and I've got a masseuse, and I've got a 25 assistants, and I, I want a cup of coffee on my desk when I come in, and I want my feet rubbed when I come home. It's all about who can serve me, and that's the world's view of greatness. It's the me monster. And it's insatiable. 
And it's never happy. It always wants more. And Jesus says, that's not greatness at all. He flips it around. He says, greatness isn't defined by how many people serve you. Greatness is defined by how many people you serve. In our men's ministry, we have a men's ministry manifesto. And the first part of that is that we would be men who live to embrace the call of God upon our life. God has a calling on our life and we want to walk in that. Second one is, is that we would be men who are builders of other men. And by men, I mean men and women, humans. Builders of humans. Yeah, God says greatness is the more people that you build and strengthen and edify and pour into, that is the definition of greatness. And that, my friends, is a reality. And the promise he gives is that whoever exalts himself will be what? Humbled. But he who humbles himself will be exalted. Oh, it is quite an amazing thing when God says, hey, come up here. I want to use your life. It is quite an amazing thing when God says, well done, my son, my daughter. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful in a few things. I'll make you rule over many. Oh, that's quite incredible. And here, before Jesus gives these woes, he gives us the wisdom that if we would walk in it, we would not need the woes. God takes no delight in bringing woes upon us. Uh, but there are woes if we will not listen. And let's go into the first one. Look what he does. Uh, the first woe of self-righteousness is this. Self-righteousness repels others from coming to God. Our self-righteousness repels others from coming to God. Look how Jesus says it in verse 13. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. For you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. God starts working on a person's life. He starts calling him to himself. And the religious leaders come along and they mess it all up. And they take God, uh, God's work in that person's heart away. And they put them on the wrong direction and on the wrong path by their self-righteousness. Crazy. Crazy. Self-righteousness repels others from coming to God. And Israel's religious leaders were convinced they were so godly, they were so right, and yet here Jesus says, actually, not the case at all, you're actually hindering people from knowing me. Wow. What a woe. What an indictment. I have a question for you. Why is self-righteousness so unattractive? Why is pride and arrogance so unattractive? What is it about it that makes it so ugly? Let me hear from you. What is it? We see ourselves. Pardon me? We see ourselves. Oh, we see ourselves. Interesting. What else? What else? It's annoying. It's annoying. Man. I'll high five that one. It's annoying. Yeah, you see somebody who thinks they're amazing, like, dude, get over it, right? It's annoying. Or they're always right. Or they're always judgmental. Or they're always putting others down. They're always talking trash about someone. They're just, oh, oy vey. No fun to be around. But on the other hand, why is humility and selflessness so attractive? Isn't that interesting? Just so attractive. To be with someone who's humble and, and selfless and forgiving. You're just like, you love being around them. And when you're around them, instead of telling you about how great they are, what do they do? They ask you, how are you doing? And they actually care for you. And the beauty of humility is just incredible. Uh, in movies, by the way, Hollywood has realized this. In movies, if you want to have a blockbuster, you know what you do? You take a really powerful guy or woman or whatever, really powerful hero, and you make him humble, and you make him rescue those who are in need, and you've got a blockbuster. It's called Braveheart, right? I mean, great movie, right? Uh, and you know what that is? You know what all those movies are? What are they? They're a picture of the gospel. This is what's attractive. And this is who our God is. 
He's an amazing saver, savior. He's a superhero. He is the creator of all things and he's interested in you and he comes to bring us up. And it's just, it's every romance novel, every knight in shining armor, Hollywood knows it's written on our hearts. We were made to be redeemed. It's the gospel. And self-righteousness is the antithesis of what God has made beautiful. And uh, interesting to consider. Um, here's a question. Uh, the religious leaders were actually repelling people from, from God by their self-righteousness. Here's a question. What do people think about God from our walk of life? How's your walk? What do your neighbors think about Christianity because of you? Oh, let's make it even closer. What do your kids think about Christianity because of you? What does your family think about, your extended family think about Christianity because of you? Oh, we see how important the humble character is. Uh, uh, humility and selflessness reveal the heart of Jesus. They reveal Jesus' love and Jesus' character. And when we walk in humility, people will be attracted to God through our life. Our life will be a witness. Jesus said, you are the light of the world. You are the ones that I want to use to allow people to see God's love working in and through your life that they might come to me. And uh, self, uh, you know, the humility of Jesus just reveals his, his love and character. And self-righteousness destroys it. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Quite an antithesis to the woe, to the self-righteous, right? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Let me just ask you, what does it mean to be poor in spirit? What does it mean? Nobody wants to touch, touch that one, huh? I hope, we, I hope we know what it means because it's, it's in the Beatitudes. It's Matthew chapter 5. It's what Jesus preached, right? It's the Beatitudes. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? It means to be humble and not think too highly of yourself, but to think of others better than yourself. To uh, uh, not be so critical of others, but to be, uh, m you know, more critical of, of self. Realize that, wow, I'm not, I'm not amazing. And thanks for loving me anyway. Thanks for putting up with me. Being poor in spirit means I'm not thinking about myself all the time. I'm thinking about you. Uh, that's what it means to be poor in spirit. And here we see what Jesus is calling us to. Blessed are the poor in spirit, but woe to those who are so self-righteous that their self-righteousness repels others from God. Uh, uh, a big woe. The next one. Uh, I'm going to try to go a little faster on these. Verse 14. Uh, the next woe. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you devour widows' houses for a pretense. Underline the word pretense. What's a pretense? Ulterior motive. Ulterior motive. Not the real thing. It's fake. You, you, you devour widows' houses for a pretense, making long prayers. Therefore, you'll receive greater condemnation. Wow. He's saying that Israel's religious leaders, they would use prayer and religious activities as a cloak to fleece people out of money and things that they wanted. In other words, self-righteous uh, self people use religion to exploit and to control others. Dangerous thing to do. Uh, it's, it's deceptive. It's a, it's a pretense. It's a, it's a falsehood, right? And I tell you, it's still happening today. It's happening in churches all across America that in the name of religion, they're trying to get money out of people. It's a sham. Uh, it's happening all across. Uh, think about uh, the priests that sexually abuse people using religion uh, to exploit and to control others. Uh, deplorable, hard to believe. Uh, look at Islam using religion to suppress women and to control nations. Uh, it's incredible, right? Just trying to exploit. 
Uh, and Jesus says, woe to you. And he even says something that ought to just put fear in us right here. He says, there's a greater condemnation for those who do that. There is a, a deeper condemnation in hell for those who play such sickening games. And uh, we're not immune. Uh, we, I listed some pretty heinous things right there, but, but we're not immune. May we never use religion to control our kids, parents. Using the Bible as a weapon or as a tool to control our kids, to get them to do what we want. May we never use religion on our spouses. Bible says you got to submit to me, woman. Man, if you ever talk like that, you are so far from Jesus. You should never ask your wife to submit to you once, ever. Don't let those words ever come out of your, your mouth, men. Never. Here's what happens. If you love your wife like Jesus loved the church, she will want to follow you. She will want to follow you. Ladies, we're not, you're not immune either, though, right? Uh, getting the Bible and hitting your husband over the head with it? Oh, spiritual leader, is that what you're supposed to do? Yeah, looks good. Oh, sure, yeah. Uh, not using religion as a tool, right? To manipulate and to control and to exploit. We're not immune. Uh, how do we use the Bible? Well, the Bible has profound insight to life. David said, God, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. It illuminates the path for me when I don't know how to walk, when I don't know what to do. It gives me direction and wisdom and insight and discernment to handle difficult things in life. Your word's amazing. And so parents, we don't use our, the Bible to control our kids. We use the Bible to give light to our kids. You see, it doesn't matter if from the, from the playground through junior high, through high school, through courting, through uh, marriage, uh, through from the boardroom, anywhere, from the bedroom to the boardroom, God's word is an incredible source of wisdom and knowledge and instruction. But we're to use it in a way that brings light to people, not to control and manipulate people. Big difference. Big difference. And good parenting is giving your child the tools he needs as he goes out onto the playground from God's word so that he sees, wow, God's ways are just wise. Mom, Dad, I did that at school today. And you know what? Now Johnny and I are friends. Wow, way to go, buddy. You know, and, and that's, that's the power of God's word. And that's the instruction that, uh, that, uh, that God gives us. It's to give us life and life abundantly. And so may we use it. Um, uh, a verse for you on your screens so clearly illustrates how God's word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. It's 2 Timothy 3.16. Uh, let me hear you uh, all read this together. One big thundering voice. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete. What a verse, thoroughly equipped for every good work, that the man and woman of God might be complete not lacking anything. In Proverbs 2, it talks about God's wisdom and it's stored up for you. It's more than just enough to get you through the moment. It's a plethora of wisdom and discernment and knowledge and understanding so that it's even overflowing. You have enough not to just get through your problem, but to also then just give freely to anyone who needs it because God has just poured into you so much wisdom and instruction. Uh, it's it makes you complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. And notice what it says. All scripture, that means your entire Bible, is given by inspiration of God. In the Greek, theonuma. Beautiful phrase. Theonuma. God breathed. 
This word that you are holding in your laps was God-breathed from him to you personally. God-breathed that you might have life and life abundantly. Theonuma. Uh, this is the, and so may we use it not to control, not to manipulate, but to bring light and truth and wisdom into our lives that we might be pointed to Jesus and to his abundant life. And uh, here the religious leaders were doing the exact opposite, using it as a tool, as a pretense to manipulate and to twist. Uh, just, just sad. Uh, look at the next woe that he gives. Um, verse 15, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you travel land and sea to win one proselyte, to win one convert, and when he is one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourself. Wow. Harsh words, Jesus. But he's speaking so pointed because they would not listen previously. He's trying to save them from going to hell. And here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, hey, if we are self-righteous, those who follow us will be self-righteous too. What kind of fruit do you want in your life? How do you want your kids to turn out? Most of learning is caught, not taught. I'll say it again. Most of learning is caught and not taught. And uh, if we are self-righteous, we will see that visited on our children and it will look ugly to us. Jesus tells these guys, the people who follow you, you make them twice the son of hell as you are. Amazing, amazing. And we need to be careful. We want to make sure that we're walking in humility so that we can uh, uh, really be walking with the true and living God and that the fruit it has in our life is effective. And, 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 and man, there's no greater joy than to see your children walking in truth, than to see your sons come up, grow up to be providers and, and uh, your daughters grow up to be godly women and to be contributors to society instead of takers of society, to be the head and not the tail, to be the giver and not the borrower, to be the one that, that lends and doesn't take, to be the one that's the response. Oh, that's a beautiful thing. But we have to make sure that we're on the right path in order for that to happen. Uh, uh, Jesus says, hey, listen, those who follow you will be just like you are. And if we're self-righteous, they'll be self-righteous. Um, this next one is uh, uh, a little bit longer. Let's take a look. He says, woe to you blind guides. What a powerful idiom. Imagine having a blind guide. Imagine calling an Uber driver and you're like, dude, are you blind? <laughs> hey, 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 is that, a, is that a white stick with a red? Are you driving my Uber? What's going to happen to you if you have a blind Uber driver? You're going to crash. Jesus said, if the blind lead the blind, you know what's going to happen? Everyone falls into a ditch. And here he says, woe to you, you blind guides. Think of the, think of the, the imagery. They think they know God. They think they see, but they're blind. Wow. Woe to you blind guides who say, whoever swears by the temple, it is nothing. But whoever swears by the gold of the temple, he's obliged to perform it. You fools, you blind men, which is greater, the gold or the temple that sanctifies the gold? Obviously the temple, right? And, and whoever swears by the altar, it's nothing. But whoever swears by the gift of the altar, me, whoever swears by the altar, it's nothing. But whoever swears by the gift that is on it, he is obligated to perform it. Fools and blind, which is greater, the gift or the altar that sanctifies the gift. Therefore, he who swears by the altar swears by it and all the things on it. He who swears by the temple swears by it and by him, by God who dwells in it. And he who swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits on it. Jesus, in another parallel passage, simply said it this way. You don't need to swear. Simply let your yes be yes and your no be no. 
What is Jesus saying about these guys? Here's what he's saying. He's saying self-righteous people live duplicitous lives. I think this will become a little more clear. Let me unpack it just a little bit. They have a God life and a secular life. They have a church life and a life in the world. They speak one way at church and they speak another way in the world. They have different morals at church when they're around Christian people than they do when they're out in the world. And so there's a, a duplicity that's happening. They sing praise the Lord at church on Sunday and then Monday morning cheat on a business deal and think nothing of it because it's not at church. Jesus says it makes no difference. There is no kingdom secular division. All of the earth and the fullness thereof is the Lord's. And he is on the throne in every category. And it doesn't matter if you made a promise at church or you made a promise at work. Both are equally valid. And our word should be sacred. And Jesus is saying here, woe to you self-righteous people who live duplicitous lives and play religious games and you're a different person at church than you are at home. You're compartmentalizing God. If the Ten Commandments teach us anything, it teaches us that all of life is sacred. You shall have no other God before me. I need to be first in your life. I need to be paramount in your life. I need to be always on your mind. You shall not make any graven image of me. I mean, uh, don't, uh, don't make me into something I'm not. Don't take my name in vain. Your words matter. Remember the Sabbath day. Keep it holy. Keep a day where, where you're, you're set aside a day to just entirely rest and focus on worshiping and being thankful for all God has done for you and learning his ways. Honor your father and mother. Your family is sacred. Do not commit adultery. Your marriage bed is sacred. Do not lie or bear false witness. Your word is sacred. Do not covet what your neighbor has. Your thoughts are sacred. What is God telling us in the Ten Commandments? Everything we do is what? Sacred. There is no secular kingdom division. And be the same person at church as you are at home. And be the same person. There's, there's, it's all the same, right? Um, dangerous to make compartments for God. Dangerous to say, well, I didn't swear. Dangerous to not be a keeper of your word. The Bible says that... Uh, God delights in this, that he who swears to his own fault and yet does not change. What does that mean? It means you made a bad deal and you don't try to get out of it just because you made a bad deal. What does that mean? It means a buddy asks you, hey, can you help me move Friday night? On Monday, he asks you and you say, yeah, I'll help you move. And then on Tuesday, another buddy comes and says, hey, I got tickets to the Padres. They're tied for first. Friday night, you want to come? Yeah. Hey, sorry, I can't help you move. No, 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 no. He who swears to his own hurt and what? Does not change. Keeps his word. And uh, why? Because everything we do is sacred. And so uh, no duplicity in our lives. Uh, not one way at church, another way in, in the world. Uh, dangerous thing to do and uh, not near the heart of God. Uh, the next one, verse 23, the fifth woe. Let's look what he says. Uh, verse 23, woe to you scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. How many times has he called them hypocrites? Uh, for you pay tithe, that's a tenth, of mint and anise and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law. Uh, he, you pay tenth of these little spices. You, someone makes you a cup of tea and what do you do oh excuse me everyone excuse me and you pull your scissors out of your back pocket and you cut a tenth of your tea bag off what are you doing oh I'm saving this for the Lord <laughs> self-righteousness 
doing it for show so you can show everybody how pious you are, how much money you give, all that you do. And what does he say? You forget the weightier matters of the law, which are what? Read them to me. Number one, justice. Number two, mercy. Number three, faith. Oh, wow. Justice, mercy, faith. What is justice? Justice is doing the right thing even when no one is looking. Justice is doing what is right just because it's right, just because it's important to God. Justice is is not uh, favoring one person over another for what they can do to you. Justice is being not duplicitous. It's being right. Mercy. What is mercy? Being kind and gracious and forgiving and faith. Stepping out in faith and, and living your life to the glory of God. He said, these are the things that are really important to me. And here's what the fifth woe can be wrapped up in. Uh, self-righteous people pride themselves on obeying petty religious rituals while disobeying the things that matter most to God. Yeah, I went to church on Sunday and I tithe. I'm done for the month. What? No, 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 no. We go to church. We come here. This is where we come to learn about God and to allow his word to enter into our heart, to worship and to praise him. Why? So that we can go out there and live it out. This is the place where we get instruction, where we get guidance, where we uh, just meditate on how good God is to us so that why? We can go out and do the things that are really important to God. And self-righteousness makes a majors on the minors and misses out completely on the heart of God. They miss the things that are really important to God. And I love how Jesus says it. He says, you, you, you hypocrites. You strain at a gnat and you swallow a camel. Strain at a gnat and swallow a camel. Tremendous imagery. Uh, why would a religious leader strain at a gnat? Anybody know? Unclean. Uh, uh, not exactly, but you're on the right track. Why? Why would they strain at a gnat? Here's why. Uh, here's what it means to strain at a gnat, by the way. Have you ever had a gnat fly in your mouth? Religious leaders, uh, I was at a, a motocross race one time many years ago. I was on the starting line waiting for the race to start, had my helmet on, uh, goggles not on yet, helmet on, and as I'm sitting there, I yawn waiting, and a fly goes, hits my throat and straight down. It's disgusting, right? I still remember it. Uh, I don't know why I tell you that, but, yeah. but do you know what a religious leader would do? They're walking on a dry and dusty road and a fly would, how many of you have had a gnat, just be honest, how many of you have had a gnat fly down your throat? Do you know, what a, you know what a religious leader would do? They would stick their finger down their throat until they vomited. And so you'd be there and you'd be, you'd be walking along and all of a sudden there's Shlomo and he goes, hoo, hoo, hoo. like Shlomo, you okay? Oh yes, yes, what are you doing? I swallowed a gnat, and I didn't want to break God's law. You see, in Deuteronomy, uh, in the laws of God, there was a law that you should not drink blood. Why? Because that was the, what all the occult religions did. They would do sacrifices, human sacrifices, and they would drink the blood, thinking they'd get the power of that person in there. And God says, that is demonic. Do not drink blood, for in it is the, is the life. And it was a law. And so they would have a gnat fly in their mouth, and they would strain at it to get it out so that they didn't break that law and they could impress everybody on how righteous they are. And here's Jesus' imagery. He says, yeah, you miss the point completely and you swallow a camel. How much blood in a camel? <laughs> Fill up your car tank, man. That's a lot of blood. Uh, vivid imagery. And here we see exactly what this woe is. Self-righteous people pride themselves on obeying petty religious rituals while they miss out completely on the things that matter most to God. He has shown you, O oh man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, but to do justly and to love mercy 
and to walk humbly with your God. Do the right thing. Show mercy to everybody else. Love showing mercy. Love being a merciful person to others. And walk humbly with your God. Those are the things that matter to God. Not swallowing a gnat for crying out loud. Um, number six. Are you tracking with me? How are we doing? Yeah? You tracking? Uh, let's go on. Let's move on. Verse uh, 25. We'll hit number six. The sixth woe. There's eight, so we got uh, three more here. Six, seven, and eight. Uh, verse 25. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. One more time, you hypocrites. For you cleanse the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside they are full of, say it with me, what? Extortion and self-indulgence. What's Jesus saying? What's he saying? You cleanse the outside of the cup. He's not talking about cups, is he? What's he talking about? Our life. Our life. You cleanse the outside of your life, but the inside of your life, your heart, how is it? It's disgustingly dirty. And here we see something. We see self-righteous people have a powerless religion that cannot change the wicked, sinful heart that we have. It's worthless. It's vain. It does nothing. And so we try to look good on the outside and we put a veneer, but as we put the veneer on, we're thinking horrible, rancid thoughts inside. Tell me, what good does that do? What good does that do? Does God not see? Are we fooling God? No, of course not. Here's what is really cool. Jesus has the power to change us from the inside. The religious leaders were all show and no go. It was, it was entirely external. And with the mouth, they professed godliness while their heart was consumed with self-indulgence. They're preaching a sermon, but they're lusting at the girl in the front row. What good does that do? You think that's pleasing God? They're praying, but they're trying to get the money from the widow. What good does that do? You think that's pleasing God? No. Your religion is worthless. It's a powerless religion that cannot change the heart. Please keep that slide up for me if you wouldn't mind. Uh, uh, that's... That's what they have. Jesus, on the other way, is the exact opposite. Jesus has the power to change our heart and to give us new life. Jesus has the power to rise the dead and to bring life to them. Jesus has the power to make the blind see and the lame walk. And all of those things are external pictures of what he does. He does it from the inside. I love how he does this. He did it in my life, and he changed me in a day. Oh, I still had a ton to grow and to mature in and to learn, and uh, wasn't perfected, but he changed my life in a moment, because in a moment, I had a desire to walk with him from on the inside, when before, I never did before. How does he do it? He's amazing. And the way he does it is through his love. Do you remember the woman caught in the act of, the, of, of adultery? Do you remember the story? There was a woman in the Bible and she was caught in the very act of adultery by the religious leaders. And a whole group of religious leaders bring her to Jesus. They come with rocks in their hands and they ask Jesus this question. Jesus, this woman was caught in the very act and they're all pointing at her. And no doubt she's scantily clad. She was caught in the very act. Maybe she has a sheet, sheet wrapped around her. I don't know. Uh, and she's shamed. Here she is. She's humiliated. Here she is in front of all these powerful religious leaders. And now they bring her to Jesus. And they've got rocks in their hands. So she's just cowering, just waiting to be pelted. Head down, hanging in shame. And they say, this woman right here, she was caught in the very act of adultery. And Moses said in the law that she should be stoned. What do you say, Jesus? Let me ask you. Were they asking the question because they cared about this woman? Why were they asking the question? To try to trap Jesus. They know he's merciful and gracious. And if he lets her off, he breaks the law of Moses and they can kill him. Which is why they have murder on their hearts. 
And so Jesus in this trap, and he is so profound, he says nothing to the woman. And he says to all the religious leaders, he who is without sin, let him throw the first stone. Wow. Then he writes down on the ground in the dirt and writes with his finger on the dirt. And we don't know what he writes, but it must have been Sally Johnson, 1978. And the Bible says that from the oldest to the youngest, in chronological order, one by one, these religious leaders departed. Sally Johnson, 1978, and this religious leader who was an adulterer walks away. Then he writes www.hotbabe.com <laughs> and the next religious leader walks away. And he writes down a bunch more things. And one by one, they each walk away. And Jesus still has never spoken a word to this woman. She's embarrassed. She's humiliated. Her head's hanging down. She's waiting for rocks to hit her. And now Jesus speaks the first words to her that he's ever spoke to her. He says, woman, where are your accusers? And I can almost see it. She lifts up her head. And to her surprise... Every finger that is pointing at her guilty, guilty, guilty has been taken away and they're all gone. And she answers Jesus, wow, I don't have any. And Jesus' second word to this lady, neither do I accuse you. Now go and sin no more. What just happened? What just happened? He changed her from the inside. I've never been loved like this. I've never been known like this. And she answers, I'm sure, I won't. Thank you so much. And she's changed from the inside. Outward self-righteous religion can put a veneer on a pig. It can put lipstick on a pig, but it cannot change the heart. Only Jesus can do that. And he's marvelous at it. And this is what he does. This is what he, who he is. He has the power to change our heart and to give us new life. And he does it all the time. It's what he loves to do. He calls the dead to rise to new life. He calls the blind to see. And I remember the day he transformed my heart. I'm not perfect by any means. I'm a sinner like all of us. But I have a heart's desire to live my life for him. And I'm so thankful for this work he's done inside of me. Uh, and all of you. Um, and this is what the scripture teaches, right? The Bible says that if any man is in Christ, he is what? a new creation. The old things have passed away and he has become a new creation in Jesus Christ. New life has begun. This is what God does. This is what God promised. This is who he is. Paul says, though our outward man is perishing, the inward man is being renewed day by day. And it's just what God does. He changes us from the inside. And that is a, a, a radical change that we all need. I'm so thankful for it. Um, what a difference between the, the person of Jesus and the uh, self-righteous religious leaders that just made religion such a, such a farce. Um, let's look at the next one. Uh, number seven. Uh, We're on verse 27. Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, and one more time, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside they are full of dead man's bones and all uncleanliness, uncleanness. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. What do you do when you're trying to be righteous and your heart is wicked? What do you do? You have one of two options. You either repent and cry out to God and say, Lord, be merciful on me, a sinner, and let him give you new life. Or you fake it. And you put on a veneer. 
and you make the outside look amazing. And that's what Jesus' next thing he says. He says, self-righteous people are total hypocrites. It's just hypocritical. They appear godly on the outside, and yet they are actually rancid, full of decay and wickedness on the inside. He uses the phrase, and it's so picturesque, a whitewashed tomb. The modern-day equivalent would be a casket. Have you ever seen a casket? Caskets are beautiful, are they not? They've got that lacquer coat on them. They're shiny and polished. They actually have a better paint job than my car does. I mean, they look great. And... uh, uh, yet, what's on the inside? And they lower that thing into the ground. And imagine what's on the inside of that thing in a month. Worms and maggots and gross stuff. and Oh, beautiful on the outside, but just decrepit and vile on the inside. And Jesus says, self-righteous leader, that's what you look like. Just amazing. What a imagery. Um, rotting, dead, and putrefying on the inside. And the truth is, is that none of us by ourselves are righteous. We all struggle with pride. We all struggle with selfishness. We all struggle with ego. We all struggle with lust. We all covet. We all, we all face these things, right? We're not righteous. And if we are not righteous, why would we ever try to put on a veneer as if we were? You ever do it? You ever do it? You ever try to appear super spiritual? You ever try to appear really godly? Oh, every one of us has. You get asked at Thanksgiving dinner, hey, would you say a prayer for the family? Why, yes, I would. (laughs) You start speaking in 1611 King James English. (laughs) Thou mighty heavenly... What? Did your voice change? You ever heard people pray, and when they pray, their voice changes? I hate that. (laughs) It's fake. And yet we're all tempted to do it. Why would we ever be tempted to be self-righteous when we have no righteousness in of ourselves? The Bible tells us that our righteousness is like what? Filthy rags. The Bible tells us that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And I've told you this before. In the Greek, the, the, the tense is all of us have sinned and are presently right now falling short of the glory of God. There's none righteous. No, not one. Uh, why would we ever pretend that we are? Why? Because it appeals to our flesh. Um, all of us are sinners. All of us fail to put God first in our lives. All of us are prone to put other things ahead of God. All of us are are, are prone to having other priorities instead of prayer, instead of Bible study, instead of serving others, instead of being in ministry, instead of being a leader uh, in your community. We're all prone to just serve ourselves. So why would we ever act like we're so spiritual? The only righteousness that we have is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul, he was a pretty good guy. Uh, A lot better than me. And here's what he said. This is in Romans chapter 7, I believe. I know that is in my flesh, what? Not one good thing dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that will, I don't find it in myself. I know that in my flesh, nothing good dwells. If that's true, then why would we ever try to put on a vision of righteousness? Here's why. Because we like the praise of men more than we like the praise of God. You like being thought that you're really spiritual when you pray? I hope you like it, because you might have impressed your, your family, probably not, but you might have, and you sure didn't impress God. And you like the praise of men more than the praise of God? These religious leaders did. Uh, you know, just incredible. Um, we need to be careful. Uh, Jesus said the goal is not to wash the outside of the cup. The goal is to wash the heart, to change the heart. And that's a work that only Jesus can do. Change must happen inside. And that's the work that Jesus does. And we can never take credit for it. In men's ministry, guys, we're going to be looking at David. And it is said of David that he was a man after what? 
God's own heart. What does that mean? What does it mean to be a man after God's own heart? Let me hear from you. What does that mean? Pursuing uh, God, okay. What else? Desire to please God, really good. What else? I'm sorry? Loves what God loves, really good. What else? Following Him. A man after God's own heart, does it mean that we quit sinning? No. Does it mean that we're perfect in all our actions? No. Does it mean that we're super religious? No. Does it mean that we wear religious clothing? No. Being a man for God's heart simply means that we care about what God thinks. We want to know him. We want to, we're in awe of his love and his grace and his mercy for us that comes through Jesus Christ. And we want to know a God who loves us that way. That's what it means to be a man after God's own heart. We want to know his heart. We want to know his mind. We want to know his will. We want to live lives that are pleasing to him. We believe his way is, is best. And uh, uh, we, we seek God for God. We, we, we desire him, not merely his blessings. This is what it means to be a man of God's, after God's heart. And this is the work that Jesus does in our life. And it's an incredible work. And guys, I encourage you, man, get plugged into this men's ministry. Let's watch how God did it in David. And let's watch God do it in our lives. It'll be powerful. And you know what the truth is? The truth is this. A man after God's own heart is far more aware of his sin than a religious person. A man after God's own heart agonizes and mourns over the wretchedness of a sin that is ever before him. And this is why he's dependent upon God. Right now, as we go through these eight woes, you might be looking at yourself going, oh my gosh, that's me. I do these things. And if you're saying that, I would say to you, Way to go, man after God's own heart. You're seeing yourself accurately. And this is what keeps us dependent on Jesus. As I looked at these eight woes, there was not one of them that I have not been tempted by or done. And I look at it and I say, Jesus, you're amazing to love me. You're amazing to forgive me. You're amazing to use me. I want to know you more. And this is what it means to be a man after God's own heart. We rejoice in Jesus' grace. The self-righteous man is entirely different. He can go on for days without confessing any sin. Where the man after God's heart can't even go to church without confessing sin. Which one are you? How long has it been since you confessed your sin before the Lord? Uh, may we be careful and not take on the self-righteousness that so easily slips in to our life unnoticed. Look, let's look at the last woe, the eighth woe, uh, and it is the culmination of the woes. It's in verse 29. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, because you build the tombs of the prophets... And you adorn the monuments of the righteous. And you say, if we, have lived, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Isaiah was cut in half, right? I mean, all the prophets they persecuted and martyred. And they go to the tombs and they say, we wouldn't have done that. Do you know what the eighth woe of self-righteousness is? The eighth woe of self-righteousness is that the, the self-righteous man thinks he's better than others. He reads the Bible and he says, I can't believe Peter denied Jesus three times. I would have never done that. I can't believe David slept with Bathsheba. I would never do that. I can't believe Aaron made a golden calf. I would never do that. I can't believe they didn't have faith to go into the promised land. I would never do that. You look at yourself as better than everyone else. Where the man who walks with Jesus looks at it and says, Oh, but by the grace of God, there go I. Big difference. Big difference. I can believe 
Peter denied Jesus three times. I've been tempted myself. I can believe David slept with Bathsheba. I've been tempted myself. I can believe the children of Israel didn't walk into the promised land. I've been afraid to step out in faith and conquer battles that look bigger than me lots of times. And a big difference happens. Instead of condemning the woman caught in the act of adultery, the man who walks with God says, Lord, have mercy on her. Please forgive her. She doesn't know what she's doing. Big difference. Who do you want to be? Who do you want to be? And may we be aware of the woes of self-righteousness. They are damning and they are destructive. The self-righteous man uh, uh, is, is hard to live with, man. Hard to live with. Step on the toes of a self-righteous man and you will pay a price. Step on the toes on, of a man who is walking in the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ and you will be forgiven. And here, no big deal, it's okay. Uh, who do you want to be? Who do you want to be? Look how Jesus wraps this up. Well, we'll wrap up with these, the, the end of this. Look at verse, uh, where do we leave off? On verse 37? No. 31. Uh, look what Jesus says. Therefore, you are witnesses against yourself that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Jesus is saying, you're as wicked as your fathers. You are the carbon copy of your fathers. And look what he says, verse 32. Fill up then the measure of your father's guilt. What's he saying? At the time when Jesus is teaching them this, what does he know about them? What are they doing? They are plotting right now to murder him. And he says, fill up the full measure of your father's guilt. Go ahead and go through with it, right? Just crazy. Just amazing. Verse 33. Serpents. Brood of, of vipers. Uh, he calls them snakes. You family of snakes. How can you escape the condemnation of hell? Answer? You can't. You can't. Not in self-righteousness. You can't. You won't see your need for a Savior. Therefore, indeed, I send you. I want you to circle the words, I send. This is Jesus speaking. And Jesus says, I send you prophets, wise men, and scribes. Jesus is going to continue to try to reach them after they crucify him. After you crucify me, I'm still going to send you prophets, wise men, and scribes. And here's what you're going to do. Some of them you will kill. Some of them you will crucify. Some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city. Peter, they crucified upside down. James, the, the big James, they stoned him and smashed his head in with a fuller's hammer until his brains came out. Stephen, they stoned. And on and on and on I could go. Every man God sent them, they did this too. Look at Jesus' love. I mean, they're denying Jesus and he says, I'm still going to send you more guys. Just incredible. Uh, verse 35, that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth from the blood of righteous Abel. When, when was Abel alive? Right in the very beginning, right after the Garden of Eden, uh, one of the first humans on earth. Uh, and he was killed by his brother because he was jealous of his walk with God. Uh, he killed Abel, Abel, the first martyr in the Bible. Uh, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechah. Uh, who was Zechariah? One of the last writers in the Old Testament. Second to last book in the Old Testament. Died about 450 B.C. He was killed between the, uh, the, the temple and the altar, Jesus says. Uh, from, the, from the first martyr in the Bible to the last martyr in the Old Testament, assuredly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. What's he saying? He's saying all the sin 
of the guilt of all the godly people ever murdered is going to come upon you from the guilt of uh, the, the the guilt of the sin of killing Abel all the way to the guilt of sin of kill, killing Zechariah all the way to the guilt of the sin of killing the Messiah because you would not repent at my words. Forgiveness is available. They're too self-righteous to receive it. Just amazing. And look how he finishes it. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. We just hear his heart. So tender here. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. The one who kills the prophets. The one who stones those who are sent to her by God, by Jesus. How often I wanted to gather your children together just as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and underline these words. But you were not willing. Not that I couldn't save you, not that I didn't want to save you, not that I didn't try to save you, but that you were not willing. And the reason? Because you were what? Self-righteous. The only thing that will keep us from receiving the love of a Savior, thinking we don't need it, we're good enough on our own. Look what he says here. This kind of sets us up for next week. Uh, next week, by the way, awesome study. Uh, buckle your seatbelts and read ahead for next week. We're going to go into Matthew chapter 24, a little mini-series that I've titled The Eleventh Hour, The Coming of King Jesus. Prophecy all about end times events. We are there. We are walking in it. Going to be powerful. Uh, read ahead. Going to be awesome. Look how Jesus sets it up. He sets up chapter 24. See then, your house is left to you desolate. What was their house? What's he talking about? The temple and the religious uh, institution of Israel. Your house is left to you desolate. The temple bankrupt and totally destroyed. Uh, for I say to you, you shall see me no more until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And he quotes a messianic psalm, Psalm 118, about the second coming of Jesus. He says you're going to be, your temple's going to be bankrupt and ransacked and destroyed, and it was. 70 AD, it's been destroyed for 2,000 years. Right now, there's a Muslim mosque sitting on that spot. Your temple is bankrupt and ransacked, and your eyes are blinded. You will see me no more. Spiritual blindness on the nation Israel, and they can't see Jesus until you see me coming in my glory. Uh, we'll read about it next week. Matthew 24, read ahead. You may freely share this message with others as long as you don't charge for it. Support for these broadcasts comes from your generous donations that allow us to give away our materials for free. To participate with us, please visit our website at themissionchurch.net. God bless.